Good evening and welcome to City Reformed at our evening service. Uh, my name is Naman Cho. If we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here. And a privilege of mine to, to be preaching this evening. Um, if you've been with us the past couple of weeks, we've been going through the Westminster Shorter Catechism as we read through the, the liturgy earlier this evening. And we've kind of sort of lined up the catechism also with Advent now uh, that we started two weeks ago. And we're kind of going through a lot of these questions and answers that explore more of who Jesus is, right? A fitting theme for Advent. Uh, and as we read earlier, um, it asks us, what offices does Christ carry out? And we listed the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And so tonight we'll be looking a little bit more deeply into Christ as prophet and, and what this office means for Jesus and what it means for us to call him a prophet. So uh, if you turn to your bulletins, I will read for us our passage tonight, if you'll follow along. And then at the end, at the conclusion of it, if you'd respond with thanks be to God. Let's read from Luke chapter 4, verse 13 through 30. <clears throat> And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. <clears throat> he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the piece where it was, place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set, a to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote, me to, quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so again, we're here in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, not doing our ordinary thing where we pick a book and, and work straight through it, but we're going through the catechism uh, and letting the truths of the catechism uh, be, be evidenced in these passages that we pick. And, and we're, as we're driving through these texts, sometimes it may feel like we're kind of thrown into the mix of things. 
And so to give you a little bit of a context of what's going on here in Luke, uh, the birth, obviously, of Christ has already happened. Um, and uh, a lot of the preparation for Jesus and his ministry has also already happened. So uh, his learning uh, as a youth all the way to, to now, uh, where he is in this text. He's been baptized by John the Baptist, and he has gone through the temptation, the temptation narrative. Some of you may uh, have attended our morning service a couple of weeks ago when Matt preached on that from the Gospel of Matthew. So now he's beginning his ministry, and this is where we land Um, And he returns to his hometown of Nazareth, where he grew up. Uh, I spent my my undergraduate years uh, at Boston College, uh, all four years there. And uh, being a college student, I was was so gravitated towards towards sports and and kind of greatness of sports and how fun they could be. Uh, But as I got to BC, there wasn't a lot that I could kind of cling to any, any piece of glory from BC's past. Except for one thing, if you've ever heard about anything about BC sports, the one thing that the school hung on to was Doug Flutie's amazing Hail Mary pass. It happened way back in 84, way before I was born, and it was towards the end of the season, and it was this miracle play that had happened against the team that were the defending national champions the year before. Uh, the, the BC Eagles were trailing by four late in the fourth quarter with about two seconds left. And, and what every football team tries to do at the last-ditch effort is to kind of have all their receivers run down to the end zone and just chuck up this Hail Mary, right? Even the, the term Hail Mary connotes this last-ditch effort that's not expected to, to win. But miraculously, it does. And BC wins the game. And in, in the many decades of BC sports history, that seems to be the one thing uh, that they always clung to. We always saw highlights of it whenever BC was televised on ESPN. There was a statue that commemorated Doug Flutie as the only Heisman Trophy winner from BC in its history uh, right outside the football stadium. And so whenever Doug Flutie would come back to BC to either commentate a game or there was a period where he was playing for the New England Patriots for a while, there was so much hoopla and, and, and excitement when he did because this was the one guy that, that BC sports history came back to. It, it felt like the hometown hero was coming home. And that's a little bit of the setting that we see here. We saw in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus began his ministry. There were, he was doing things in Galilee that reports were going about him surrounding all of Jerusalem and Israel. And he was teaching in their synagogues and he was being glorified by everyone. So there was a lot of hoopla, there was a lot of excitement towards this person that was doing these miraculous things. And now he comes back to his hometown. So you can imagine the the expectation, the anticipation that these people might have had, wanting to get a taste of what everybody else has been experiencing. And so that as we go through this text and this passage, as we explore what it looks like for Jesus to be a prophet, a teacher, we'll explore it primarily in two ways, two, two big ideas. What was the message that was preached? And how was it responded to? The message and the response, very simple. And so let's jump into the message. If you'll read again with me, starting in verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and a recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year 
of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Luke, um, who's primarily known as an author who was a physician and very detailed in his account, actually throws in a little flair for drama here. Like he, If you notice some of the things that are happening, he, he, Jesus stood up, he unrolled the scroll, he reads what's written in Isaiah, he re-rolls the scroll, and he sits down, which would have been customary for somebody who was preaching to, to be doing it in a sitting position. And after he sits, all eyes of the synagogue are fixed on him. There's... There's drama, there's a suspense that's hanging over. What is he going to say? So what are some of the things that Jesus preaches? What are the things that he prophesies about? Well, the indented portion of your passage there, Jesus actually is citing uh, from the book of Isaiah, as it mentions, specifically from what we know as Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and the first half of verse 2, and chapter 58, verse 6, where it says... The Spirit of the Lord was upon me, because he has anointed me. Jesus is saying he was the anointed one, the chosen one to preach these words. So immediately, as we have read in our catechism question, how does Christ fulfill the office of the prophet? He does so by his word, which we'll see he's preaching from God's word, and the Spirit. Christ has been anointed by the Spirit. So Jesus is sent to do what? He is sent to proclaim good news to the poor, to set liberty for the captives and the oppressed, and to recover sight for the blind. To proclaim that the year of the Lord's favor was at hand. Now for any of the other Jews that were sitting in the pews at the time, and knowing that he's quoting from Isaiah 61, uh, they know that actually Jesus left out a line from Isaiah 61, and I listed it in your additional scriptures if you have the, the handout there. But there's a line that says, to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God that Jesus conveniently leaves out. So anybody that was hearing this would have known that this is a line that he was leaving out. So it's not to say that the day of vengeance or judgment was not going to happen anymore. But it was to say that Jesus was emphasizing this year of the Lord, this year of the Lord's favor was at hand, that he was inaugurating this favor. And for a lot of the Jewish people, listeners and hearers, this affiliated with uh, the old Jewish custom of the year of Jubilee that we find in Leviticus 25. Every 50 years, uh, the Jewish people practiced uh, this year of Jubilee to say all debts would be canceled. All slaves would be set free. What, ama- what an amazing social custom that was practiced. And what would it have looked like if we, if we had practiced something like that today? <clears throat> I was doing a little bit of research um, on, on something that might connect with us in, in modern day society. And I, upon my research, I stumbled upon the fact that the United States now sits in a place where student loan debt is the second highest consumer debt category in our country. Student loan debt is the second highest debt category in our country. It's second only to mortgage payments, and it's higher than credit card debt and auto car debt loans. $1.56 trillion, that's trillion dollars, exists in student debt in our country. 
And that's spread across 45 million boroughs. That's just over 12% of our population. So the average person, once they come out of any sort of higher education, comes out with a debt of $33,545. Maybe some of you can attest to that. I can certainly attest to that. The median debt that somebody will walk away with if they attended college or even grad school is ten dollars to $25,000. 6% of all, all borrowers of those 45 million, 6% of them walk away with more than $100,000. This is the second highest debt category in our country. It's almost an epidemic. It's a crisis that we have. What would it look like for the United States to practice the year of Jubilee? There's a lot that's been going on, a lot of uh, hypothetical questions that have been thrown around social media, and questions have been asked like, would you, to erase all of your student debt, go to prison for one year? It seems absurd, it seems really comical, but overwhelmingly the response has been yes. I would go to prison for one year to erase all my student debt. There have been now game shows that have been created to help eliminate your student debt. Now we get a picture of what something like the year of the Lord's favor, what Christ is actually promising might look like. What if the year of Jubilee was practiced even in our own midst? So, good news to the poor, liberty for the captives and the oppressed, sight for the blind. Depending on who you ask, this seems like Really good news. But also depends on who you ask. Jesus' idea of good news is to do all of these things, proclaim all of these things. But what about those who actually didn't consider themselves poor or captive or oppressed or blind? The reality of what Jesus is preaching, why it is actually good news, is that for those who have deep, deep needs are being lifted from them. But also the reality is that everybody has these deep needs, whether they're literal, physical, or spiritual. The spiritual needs that he lists are being poor, being captive, oppressed, being blind. These aren't just practical and literal, physical things. But what what does it look like to explore these things as spiritual categories? I have been sent to proclaim good news to the poor. Riches create this facade, a notion that there is no place that we cannot go, nothing that we can't afford, no access that we cannot have. It actually creates a barrier for us to acknowledging the fact, the reality of our, of our poverty. What does it look like to actually be spiritually poor, spiritually lacking in our wealth of righteousness or good deeds or good thoughts? Liberty to the captive or the oppressed. This might actually be a really difficult thing for modern day Christians to to wrap their minds around. What does it actually feel like and look like to be captive, to be prisoners, to be oppressed and persecuted? But again, if we're considering these things in spiritual categories, how does sin enslave us? How are we oppressed? How are we inflicted by the things that we have addictions towards, the things that we just can't get away from, our demons that we have. The context of this, as it was 
prophesied in Isaiah was for the Israelite people, warning them of exile, warning them of being captive and oppressed to Babylon. And so that Isaiah was trying to warn his people that the road that you continue down is only going to lead you further and further towards being captive and oppressed, but also further and further away from the very presence of God. So that in the ways that sin today causes us to be prisoners, causes us to be enslaved, causes us to be oppressed, it drives us more and more away from God himself. Those enslaved to sin, those enslaved to its patterns of addiction and brokenness. And lastly, sight for the blind. Maybe none of us in here are are blind or, or, or close to it, but what does it look like to be spiritually blind? As was a common theme in the book of John, that Jesus was the light of the world, that he came to shine light into the darkness, but those that were blind just could not see who he was, what he was preaching, what he was teaching, the things that he was doing. So Christ, anointed by the Holy Spirit of God, came to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives and the oppressed, to recover sight for the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he concludes with this single line in verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Normally, prophets, major or minor prophets in the past of the Old Testament, were messengers of God. They were just the person bringing the very word of God. You know, a lot of times you say, don't shoot the messenger. But they're bringing what God has to say to his people. But the unique thing to view Christ as prophet is to see that he is both prophet and redeemer. That Jesus is not just proclaiming that these things will happen eventually, but he's saying these things will happen and have happened in me. I am responsible for these things. He is both prophet and redeemer. He is both the messenger and the message. That he was this long-awaited Messiah, this savior figure that the Jewish people were waiting for. And that he would do it at the cost of his own life. Christ became poor so that we might be rich. Christ was arrested and beaten and ridiculed and executed so that we might be set free. He was the light of the world, came to give sight to the blind. So that the reason why good news is proclaimed to the poor, the reason why captives are set free, the reason why the blind can see is that Jesus makes it happen on the cross. So the things that he is prophesying about is his own death and victory over sin. So the reason why today, right now on December 15th, why the season of Advent is so exciting and so anticipatory is because of our perspective of our need. That if we can see our own spiritual poverty, if we can see our own captiveness or oppression or our blindness, we realize the depth by which we have been lifted up. We realize how far we have been brought up because of what Christ has done for us. So that for those of us sitting here with real spiritual and life needs, difficulties, sins, tragedies, this is good news. This is what Christ came to renew and reconcile. So if you feel poor, if you feel enslaved, if you feel wronged, if you feel blind, Hear these good news proclaimed to you by our great prophet. 
So that's the message that was preached. And so how was it responded to? How do we respond to it even now as we hear it? What are our hearts going through? If you'll read with me, starting again in verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So immediately after, Jesus says, this is the good news. This is what I have come to do. And it's going to be fulfilled in me. The initial response was actually of awe and marvel, and they were actually totally captivated by this. But very quickly, that turned to an enthusiasm that was chilled uh, to indifference. And then slowly, doubt began to sink in. They began to ask, isn't this Joseph's son of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, the one who grew up here since he was a little boy? Isn't this the same Jesus? What happened? What changed? So this leads to their desire to see a sign, to see a miracle, for Jesus to prove himself. Despite the news that we saw, that we read of in verses 14 and 15, that he was doing these amazing things in Galilee, that everybody that was talking about him was glorifying him, now he comes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he's being doubted. And before they can even voice that desire to see a miracle themselves, Christ predicts that. He comes out and says, doubtless, you'll probably want me to prove it, don't you? And that's exactly what they wanted to say. And Jesus said, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And I can kind of relate to this a little bit. Early on in in my ministry uh, preparation and career, even while I was still at seminary, I had a very difficult time going back home, particularly for large family gatherings. Uh, I grew up in a pretty large extended family, and and we we really valued spending time with our cousins and and my uh, my, my mom's siblings. So to give you a little bit of perspective, my dad is the youngest of five on his side of the family, and my mom is the second youngest of five on her side, but her younger sister never married or had children. So respectively, for, as it pertains to the cousins, I'm like the youngest of the youngest, the baby of the baby for my entire family. <clears throat> and so when they found out that I was going into ministry, they were really excited. Our entire family grew up in the church, and so that, man, now we have a pastor uh, in our family, that we could do family worship and, and do these things when we gather together, so that when we would gather together, say for Christmas or something like that, I would actually feel very intimidated. I would feel very scared to to preach in front of them, to to share a devotional with them, to lead them in any form of worship. And I began to ask myself, why do I feel this way? Well, for one, there were a couple cousins that were in my family that used to change my diaper when I was a baby. And now, what, 25, 30 years later, they're, they're listening to the Word of God preached 
from their baby cousin. Right? And so they, they know the ins and outs of who I am, the immaturity that I went through, the, the, the things that kind of set me apart that were quirky or weird. Uh, and now that I'm in ministry, like they can't view me se- completely separate from, from Naman the pastor as they knew as Naman our cousin. And, and I began to, to project that onto myself. Like, what would they think of me? Are they, are they, would they take me seriously? No prophet is accepted in his hometown, and that's exactly what's going on here in reality for Jesus, is that these people probably knew Mary and Joseph. They knew Jesus when he was a young carpenter boy. They knew him as a youth. Uh, they knew him growing up, which is why they say, isn't this Joseph's son who we watch grow before our very eyes? How can we believe what he is saying? He is now claiming to be this long-awaited Messiah that has been preached for centuries in our country's history. Can we really believe him? Jesus, show us a sign. You begin to kind of empathize a little bit with why they would ask something like that. And so Jesus uh, declines to actually show them a sign, but instead he gives them two historical references uh, of Israelite's history, and they're very unique, right? He mentions Elijah and the widow, and Elisha and Naaman, the Syrian. And, and both these narratives are, are found in First and Second Kings. And it's interesting that these are the two narratives that he brings up. Right? He doesn't bring up anything about Israel's glory days. He doesn't bring about something about David or, or Josiah when there was major reform happening in the country. But he brings about two northern kingdom prophets of Israel that happened to be prophesying during a time where Israel was going through immense, immense rebellion. They were walking away from God altogether. The Jewish people were not painted in a good picture by bringing up these narratives. And so with Elijah and the widow, when the drought and the famine was happening, the only miracle that had been kind of proclaimed before Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal is with this widow from Zarephath in Sidon, which is a Gentile country outside of Israel's borders. And Elijah shows... Uh, is sent to show favor to this woman, this woman who was on the brink of her death with her son. And Elijah asks her to, to bake her, uh, break him some bread. And she says, I only have enough, let, enough left to bake one more for my son and then we can die. But she says, have faith, bake some and bring it back to me. And so that for the remainder of the drought, remainder of the famine, her flour and her oil never ran out so that her and her son had enough to eat. And Elisha, And Naaman, the commander of the Syrian armies, who was touched with leprosy, and it wasn't like he was the only leper in in that time, as the text says. But Naaman comes to the king of Israel, who, when confronted by Naaman, is is terrified of what Naaman Naaman is going to do. But Elisha says, bring him to, to me. I will cure him of his leprosy. And Elisha Sends, when Naaman comes to his house, Elisha sends his messenger and says, go to the river Jordan and dunk yourself seven times and you'll be cured of your leprosy. Naaman at first is actually really insulted. The fact that Elisha would not come out himself but sent his messenger to do so. And the thing that he commands him to do to dunk himself in the river Jordan, it seemed absurd. The river Jordan was, was muddy and not known to be very hygienic or clean, so why send him to this river and not so many of the other rivers that he could dunk himself into? So he does so begrudgingly. But, after doing so, 
he's cured of his leprosy. And immediately after, in this text of Luke, the next words are, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Now that seemed like they went from zero to 60 really quick. So when I first read this, I was like, whoa, what's happening here? And so what, what Jesus did by bringing up these two references is to say he brought up two prophets that were known for not being rightly acknowledged by their people in their time. They were kind of quirky. But he also picked two prophets of the northern kingdom of Israel, like we said, who was in a vast period of rebellion. And the two miracles that he brings up are miracles of favor and God's grace being shown to Gentiles. That the gospel that was being preached, that Jesus just preached from the book of Isaiah, was not being promised to the the covenant community of Israel, who from Abraham had been promised this great inheritance, but is actually reaching out to the Gentiles because of the Jewish rebellion. So he equates this message of salvation to like, okay, if it's not going to be on to the Jews, then we're going to move on to the Gentiles. And so the Nazarenes are enraged by this. They didn't have a problem with the fact that the kingdom of God was coming, but they actually had a problem with how the kingdom of God would come. The gospel that Jesus preaches is not one that says, I will bless those who have devoted their entire lives to following my law, who have lived a righteous life. I will save those who deserved to be saved, who who look the part. But the gospel includes the Gentiles, the unclean, the people outside the covenant community. And in doing so, he highlights the Jewish rebellion, the sin that was existing even in the Nazaretic hearts. The Nazarenes in their own eyes were not poor. They were not captive. They were not blind or oppressed. But these unclean, unworthy Gentiles, they were the one receiving favor. Why? The Nazarenes were good. They were respectable. They were synagogue-attending, family-orienting, upstanding citizens. Why not them? This was an insult. And so no wonder they were moved towards wrath to Jesus. In the salvation that Jesus came to proclaim, these words that he prophesied, these Jews are saying, the Gentiles need it, but they don't deserve it. And they're saying of themselves, we deserve it, but we we don't actually need it because we don't consider ourselves to be poor or blind or captive or oppressed. We've kind of paved our own way by living righteously. And so we can relate to that. What are ways in which we have viewed the gospel to be a certain thing, to to be attained by a certain way? You are so unlike us. This is so unlike the criteria of what I thought it meant to be a good Christian, to be a good Presbyterian, to faithfully attend Sunday services, to be a part of these vast ministries. But you're saying these kinds of people are going to be accepted into the kingdom of heaven? Why? What kind of grace is that? Where is the exclusivity in it. The people of Nazareth are moved so much to anger and wrath, they rose up, they drove Jesus out to the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they can throw him down the cliff. <clears throat> Luke highlights this episode in Nazareth uh, in the beginning of his gospel. 
This was not chronologically the beginning of Jesus' ministry because we know that he did something in Capernaum, but also because in the other Gospels, this very episode is recounted later. But the reason why Luke lists this very in the very beginning of his Gospel is to show that this is a small picture. This is a cross-section of what Jesus' ministry will look like. Jesus will come. He will preach the good news that the poor, uh, good news to the poor, that the oppressed and the captives will be set free, that the blind will see. And people will either accept this or they'll be gravely insulted by it to the point of wanting to move him to death and execution. And maybe in this particular section, this particular episode, Jesus passes through them in a midst in a miraculous way to avoid their wrath and their anger. But ultimately, he will go to the cross. He will climb the hill on Calvary so that we could be set free, so that these, the good news of Jesus Christ could be fulfilled in his death and resurrection. The people of Nazareth could not see this because they could not see their own physical or spiritual need for why Jesus had to come and do this. They could not translate to why other people, Gentiles, people that they would not expect would be a part of this great, gracious act of God. But instead they, they claimed to have a claim to their own in the gospel message and wanted to move him to death. So that as we think about Jesus coming, as we think about Jesus doing his ministry in the time of Nazareth, as we think about Jesus coming in this season of Advent, the reason why it is so exciting, the reason why we celebrate it year after year, the reason why we do all of these things is because we know the state in which we have been saved. For we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. For Christ came to die, to lay down his life so that he could proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, where debts would be canceled, where slaves would be set free, and salvation would be offered to all. So this was the prophet that Jesus was. And not only the prophet, but the redeemer who came to accomplish that for us. So I encourage us, I exhort us, as we think about Christmas, as we think about Advent and moving forward, we reflect on these words that he preached how we are led by God's word, how we are led by God's spirit to be agents, to be ambassadors of this kind of love, of this kind of grace that welcomes people that don't look the part, that don't seem like they might belong, but that the gospel of grace extends to those who can admit to their own need and call upon a gracious Savior who would die for them. Let's pray.